Well, hello and welcome to the Argus Hydrogen and Future Fuels podcast. I'm joined today by Martin Carolan, who's the MD and CEO at Bovaris. Martin, welcome. Thanks, Tim. So, Martin, um, just for the benefits of people who don't know you, who are Provaris and what are you doing in hydrogen? Yeah, so Provaris Energy is a, an Australian publicly listed company. We are a developer of low-cost, simple, and energy-efficient hydrogen supply chains, and we focus on regional markets. So regional being the context of, of the continental Europe, uh, and then again we look at the markets of Southeast Asia coming from Australia up into Asia. Mm. So the core to our offering is, is our advanced development of a unique proprietary shipping solution, and we use the technology of a carrier being compression versus what alternatives you may have seen in the part around being liquefaction, the liquid yeah. organics, or even derivatives such as you know, methanol or, or ammonia. Good. So when, when we talk about transportation, it's often it's ammonia that's mostly raised, followed by LOHCs, if we're talking about vectors. Or yeah. if it's pure hydrogen, it's kind of liquid hydrogen and pipelines. And, and compression yeah. rarely gets discussed. Um, you know, people understand that liquefaction uh, increases density and, and we talk about reducing costs that way. So why are Provaris looking at a compression solution? We have, a, as a company, we, we had project developments with LNG and shipping and various different disciplines. But the company has, prior to 27, uh, 2019, had been focused on compressed natural gas as an integrated mm. shipping solution. So there's, there are people in our organisation with 30 years of experience around defining new pressure vessels and tanks and, and class approvals. So that's the first point. The second point is that compression, as you know, it's a proven technology, uh, run, runs around in terms of pipeline, natural gas and other chemicals and liquids, but also in the context of hydrogen, it's used as the, the storage and transport mechanism for onshore. So there hasn't been a, a precedent set where there's been a commercial gas carrier at scale in the natural gas world. So we've seen that the hydrogen economy, as it's looking to accelerate, it's, it's looking to utilise existing technologies that have, that have been called proven. I guess if you look at ammonia as the example, yeah, it's proven to be the the, the manageable way to, to move NH3 in, in a shipping context. But it's it's so compression has has its I guess the one negative to put it out there is energy density is seen as also something that's you know so low. So therefore, that would you know, to move the same amount of volume of energy, you need to you need to have a lot more capital in the shipping um, side of things. So that's adding cost. But in actual fact, it's you know we, we'll talk about that later. But I'm sure we, we can demonstrate, or we have been demonstrating that compression can actually be the lowest cost when it comes to looking at the efficiency of the full value chain. So you bring up an interesting topic there, which is basically technology readiness level. So you you obviously you've got uh, what three decades of experience in CNG and those kinds of things. So we know that it can be compressed. Um, yeah. Other than it being available today, are there any other advantages that you see for um, using compression over some of the other modalities? You know, ammonia, LOHCs, liquefaction. Yeah. We always focus on three key things. One is is the efficiency. So the so we see that it's over the the full life cycle from from renewable generation through electrolysis and then to convert to a carry and reconvert back to gas. If you look at the the capital and operating costs and the and the energy use and loss over the value chain, we actually find that compression. Uh, minimizes the losses and therefore it actually has a lower cost of delivery over certain volumes and distances. Mm. 
The second one is flexibility. So our ability to load follow what is is the renewable generation profile, which is variable. It's not it's not base load. And so the principles of liquefaction have been developed on natural gas using base load supply of the gas. So if you are following a variable production profile of a renewable generation, uh, it's it's not as simple as just converting that into a base load process. So that's the second one. The third one is um, you know, simplicity. So the process enables you to remove uh, a number of, of high capital and energy intensive processes in order to convert and reconvert you know, that gaseous hydrogen X electrolyzer into a new market. So, so that's a number. That's probably the three simple problems we, we, we can we can move from there. Yeah. <clears throat> Let me just um, come back to one of those. So we talked about efficiency just then. Um, so one of the things you were describing there is the, the the round turn effect of you know let's say for example converting hydrogen into another form, um, mm. shipping it and then reconverting at the other end. And, you, and your, yeah. your 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 take is that by stripping out some of these conversions, uh, the efficiency we, efficiency can be somewhat con, um, improved. You talked about them being over specific volumes and distances. What mm. what are the optimal operating distances for a compressed solution, in your view? Yeah, so in our view, in our work that we've published, we, we have two classes of vessels. So we have what's called a H2neo, which is which we look at an economic range shipping distance of 2,000 nautical miles or roughly you know, up to 4,000 kilometres as a round number. And then we have the H2neo, which is a much larger capacity vessel, which is we call our second generation, which is you know, up to three to 4,000 nautical miles. So that that's first of all. So if you think about the regional market context of how Hydrogen's evolving. If you looked at the markets where we're operating here up in in Norway to continental Europe, it's less than a thousand nautical miles. Yeah. In the context of northern Australia to to say Singapore as a as a key market, that's eighteen hundred nautical miles. So uh, so from a volume perspective, we start to come into uh, economic ranges of around yes you know, thirty to fifty thousand tons per annum at the low end, uh, and that might be a uh, a, a Three to four hundred megawatt scale electrolyzer project, uh, or or and we've run analysis uh, up to five hundred thousand tons per annum. So it does it does scale. I mean the okay. efficiency question that you raised, if I could just address that again, is that you know the, one of the simple maths that we look at is the conversion efficiency. So it takes us you know, one and a half kilowatt hours per kilogram of hydrogen to compress and load our vessel to to liquefy. Uh, the amount of energy required is 11 kilowatt hours per kilogram. So you're already at a you know, almost a, a factor of 10 just by moving to the, the, the higher density process. Mm. And ammonia is somewhat similar. You know, it's eight, nine, 10 kilowatt hours per kilogram. So, so that's just the commencement of the process. So that's that's another key element we always point to. So just talking about two of the things you picked up there, you know, up to 4,000 kilometres, um, let's say somewhere between 30 and 500,000 tonnes per year. Why not build a pipeline? Yeah, so clearly, you know, pipelines have been, you know, proven to be a low cost efficient way of transporting you know, gas and fluids. You know, there are there are pipelines proposed uh, in different parts of the European market, as an example, we've seen one announced earlier this year around you know, offshore production of gas, looking to make blue hydrogen down to Germany, so northern, you know, the offshore Norway. I guess, I guess we look at it in the time frame. So one, you know, the permitting, the environmental aspects, the cost, 
and execution to build offshore pipelines is, is not a, a short process. We we can we can move through you know, a construction of a fleet of vessels inside you know two to three year time frame. So that's the first thing. The flexibility that shipping offers in trying to take it from point A to point B uh, is is a key advantage. And we've seen the emergence of you know, shipping oil and gas all over the world continues to grow. So people are not necessarily you know building new new pipelines. They're building things like uh, FLNG systems and other points, right? So so shipping is not a new phenomenon to oil and gas. So I'm not sure why it needs to be any different to to hydrogen. Point to point thing's important, isn't it, as well? Because it's obviously a pipeline is, is fixed. It really is point to point. Whereas if you're using a ship, obviously it has some optionality in terms of where you go to. Yeah. So so we we've been looking at multiple uh, locations on the west coast of Norway, for example. You're in you're in individual bidding zones where you can access a power for renewable sources at different price points. Uh, then you've got the you know, three three to four major ports where we've now started to focus on in Germany. They're all building import facilities. Mm. So pipelines are great, but they need scale. And so the the early the early mover of volumes and emergence of markets and downstream applications you know, needs to start with the shipping solution. And then you know I think I think countries like Germany are trying to focus on the H two backbone and getting down yep. into the industrial heartland. So so shipping and ports play a key role to that. Yeah. So uh, a quick question. Obviously, we were talking about there's high costs involved with uh, building an ammonia synthesis plant and there's 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 not light costs involved in building a liquefaction plant. And, and the sizing is going to be a real key question when you're when you're doing um, something like that. What about CapEx um, costs for compression solutions? How do they stack up? We, we, again, we would argue you know, we could one tenth of the cost in terms of compression. We have a, a continuous uh, loading, compression, and storage process into the vessel, so we're eliminating you know, storage at at the production end as well. So we we like to look at this as you know, ship is, is birth connected to point where we are compressing and loading the vessel. Once that ship is full, it disconnects and it moves to the delivered end. So we definitely see points where we could be you know, a ten percent of the of the conversion capital required. So, so we are moving some of that capital into ships, but there's an optimal point of which we've discussed at different volumes and ranges where compression would lose its advantage to something like ammonia or liquefaction. Um, but again, yeah. at the delivered end, as we've been talking about flexibility, we're actually delivering pipeline-ready gaseous H2. Yeah. Um, so that's the other point. We're removing the storage element and we're connecting and discharging in 12 hours directly into pipeline. Yep, I'm glad you brought that up. So the solution, obviously, we're discussing here, or you're discussing, is is compression, but it's also um, the vessel angle, and then at the other end, it's delivery direct. Well, <laughs> it's uh, uncompressed um, into a pipeline or into storage. Um, so just just circling on two of those, the vessels. Mm. I think I've seen some um, some discussions on some of the uh, shipping bureaus saying that your vessels were, I think it was a while ago, uh, approved the designs and things like that. So where are you in terms of vessel uh, design and, and build? Um, well, let's start off with that question, actually. Where are you yeah. in terms of vessel design and build? Yeah, it's an important question. So we, we received approval in principle from uh, American Bureau of Shipping, our class society, back in 2021 for both yep the H2neo and the H2max and we've chosen to then further develop the H2neo to feed level design so in December last year we received what's called design approval so that's a fully designed vessel which has been approved by class 
And then the construction approval is subject to the development of a of a smaller scale prototype tank to test and prove that uh, you know our layered tank construction methodology you know will be uh, safe and according to classification codes. Mm. So the production test uh, of that prototype will take place in Q1 2024. Uh, that's announced in the last couple of weeks. And then so in in our ambition now is to have final class approvals that we require to then commence take FID on our first vessels by Q1 next year. Okay. So you, once the tank tests are complete, then you're looking to go to FID on a uh, on an actual vessel uh, build. Is that right? Yeah. And so then, so then we're developing either our own projects uh, in Australia. We're in collaboration with developers here in in Norway, and we are talking to other third parties about the use of our solution in their projects. So it would need to be in alignment with an FID of a project, which which what we've seen there there are opportunities whether they in our own portfolio or others in 2024 yeah understood and and what's the um yeah what's the lead time on, on a vessel today is that 18 to 24 months yeah so we're we're if you took a um a mid-range for example it's you know it's 18 to 24 months uh we're adding additional time frame obviously we've got the construction of the tanks and then the connection uh and installation inside the whole form so we're saying two to three years at this point so 2027 second half is our objective to be operational yeah so if all the stars aligned and obviously all the uh, the, the builds go ahead vessels uh, sorry projects are progressing that we may see something hitting the water 2027 that's right so yeah so that's our to be a full-scale commercial in production and then if if there is a decision to do anything smaller scale in terms of a, a pilot or demonstration, that would be something that, that could be achieved in 25. But but we plan to be operational at scale with multiple vessels uh, late 2027. The other thing I wanted to ask you was about storage. So we talked about obviously it's it's compression and vessels in the sort of um, in in the prepping and loading phase. But at the, the other end, if it's not being injected into a gas, uh, sorry, into a pipeline. Uh, it's is storage an element of the solution that you're offering yeah that's right so what we've been asked since since the early release in 21 about our if you look at our uh what we've released in terms of the two tanks that sit in, inside the hull uh, could we make that available in terms of you know, static storage in a barge format or could you do it onshore so we have released what we call the h2 leo that's received approval in principle in april 2023 that's that has a design capacity range of between 300 and 600 tonnes of hydrogen, mm. and it's essentially a dumbbar. So it's if you look at a, a vessel and you take off the propulsion on the front and the back, so you still have a, a storage capacity there of between three to 600 tonnes. So that could be, you know, storage at at uh, a port location, bunkering solutions, intermittent storage. We actually use it in, in the front end to optimise the round trip schedule, but it yep. could be used at the supply or the demand end. So that's the first point. We've actually done you know, a lot of work on trying to understand the, the capital cost advantages. And in storage is still one of the key parts of the value chain that needs to be resolved in an economic fashion. So we 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 have we think that in you know, twenty to thirty percent of the onshore equivalent in composite tanks, the cost lands on that. The next stage of our ambition, again, we've kind of alluded to this in recent weeks, is that 
rethink our design of tanks and the way we can construct uh, could be single digit or double digit tanks used for onshore static applications again. So we're not looking to replicate the mobility solutions of containers with ISO tanks and moving around the country. We think there's an opportunity to demonstrate uh, low cost uh, ways to store hydrogen using our compressed method and construction design for yeah. onshore applications. Yeah, makes perfect sense. So what, what sort of size are we talking about? per individual tank because obviously the customers that would be taking a delivery of this they haven't got the option to switch on a pipeline <laughs> it could be as low as one ton mm. uh, and it could be you know 10 to 20 or 50 tons and those would be stackable in parallel presumably well they, yeah they would be they'd be uh fixed to the ground that's right so mm. So there, so what's the use case of that? So we've seen in mobility groups looking to roll out deployment of, of fueling stations and where they need intermittent storage there, whether they're producing it locally or or storage. So they have storage applications. So you know, the ISO tank solutions in containers uh, you know range between you know five hundred thousand dollars per ton you know, for a ton up to a uh, million dollars. So we think we can dramatically reduce the cost of that. Yeah. So what about, I've got to ask, if we're talking about obviously uh, the compression, the transportation over a relatively short distance and then storage within within tanks, what levels of fugitive emissions uh, would you expect to see over, say, a voyage? And then what, crucially, would you expect to see in storage? I'll, I'll take the... You know, from a shipping perspective, so we're looking at propulsion, obviously. So the ship is currently designed to have electric drive propulsion trees. So it's a hybrid solution, similar to what you see in motor vehicles today. You know, the, the range and capacity and capability of fuel cells for the scale of ships that we need uh, isn't quite there yet. So, but we will, we are looking at a couple of alternatives in the first generation of our vessels to have a level of fuel cell. Clearly, we have you know, two large tanks that could that could feed uh, hydrogen as the propulsion in the future. Mm. With respect to emissions reduction, if you look at the Red Cert you know, two process, which we've done some analysis, it, that that takes place over the full value chain. So it's not primarily focused with shipping. So so the ship has been designed to be future proof, if you will, and and you know, the first generation could be a combination of of LNG, it could be methanol, it could be ammonia. Um, so it has the capability of using the fuel which is available on that supply route and which benefits the overall supply chain reductions to meet that that uh, red cert to uh, proposition. But the future ideally would be if you had the efficiency and scale in fuel cells that this, this ship could run economically on, of which the hydrogen which it's carrying. But you know, again, it's the cost of the hydrogen which needs to be put in place. In terms of yeah. the actual fugitive emissions from the from the compressed hydrogen that you're transporting, do you see any significant emissions there? Because if you look at something like liquefaction, then you've got boil-off gas and all these kinds of things yeah. happening as it as it crosses the equator. Have you quantified that? Yeah, so it's a closed system and the gas is stored at 250 bar ambient temperature. So there is zero boil-off or loss. Okay. Nothing. Is that the same as well for the uh, for the storage, I presume? Yes. That's quite an advantage. Yes. Yeah. So boil off. So when we so boil off, you know, is that the ambition of, of 0.2 or is it one percent? Um, you know, we know that if you put, you know, hydrogen at minus minus two five three into an existing LNG tank, we'd burn it. 
you know, five percent a day. So you know, one percent a day is is where the literature has been, and let's see where they get to on on their boil off you know, targets in what time frame. Yeah, because it's a, it's definitely a, a burning platform when you're storing liquefied hydrogen. Uh, if you're losing a certain amount of it a day, uh, it yeah, <laughs> really encourages quick use. Yeah, and I think if you if you do a little bit more research, just just the cryogenic requirements for pipe loading, unloading. I mean, there's there's other factors other than just the storage tank itself. Mm. So, where would you see the position of compression as a solution in the portfolio of what you say trans, trans, transmission, transportation? Yeah. Um, is it is it a short term opportunity while pipelines are being built out and things like um, uh, recracking are being explored, et cetera, or is it, is it a longer term one? Yeah, we see it as the longer term, and we're seeing that in the discussions we're having now with utilities in places like Europe. I think there is a view that ammonia really is the, is the long distance carrier of choice. Yeah. The faction seems to have fallen behind, and as you mentioned, LOHC is, is, is starting to have a, a bit more of a run. But it's the it's the overall efficiency which we spoke about at the beginning of of, mm. of session, right? If you look, if you calculate the amount of energy to move from generation to electrolysis, there's there's a there's a loss. If you then convert that to ammonia and then crack and purify, the losses are you know quite significant, say forty percent in some instances. So so if we can demonstrate over the same value chain and volume that there were sub 20%, plus we have the efficiencies of how we interact with the generation profile of that renewable source in terms of what we call flexibility. We are the short haul, long-term option. Yeah. And because you know these backbone systems, whether they're OGE, whether it's Gas Uni, or whether it's people like Gasnets uh, in Germany, that that's gaseous H2 running at 60 to 70 bar pressure. So we deliver at 250. So yeah, that we we we're talking about the same product. Yeah, well, I suppose one of the issues with some of the larger projects, which tend to veer towards crossing blue water, that they are further dated. And one of the things that we are seeing at the moment is it's the smaller projects that are making their way through. I I remember looking at Provaris years ago when you announced the uh, the Tiwi Islands uh, project, which is a big big solar project for, uh, yep. for for export. But you've been busy in, in in Norway recently. I know you've done some stuff with uh, Gentoo Energy and uh, Norwegian Energy. Can you highlight some use cases that you're seeing progressing at the moment? Yeah, so the best case is the Norwegian hydrogen example where we have completed a, a pre-feasibility. It's, it's been announced as a 270 megawatt production facility, and that's 600 nautical miles to the key ports of, of Germany and, and the Netherlands. Mm. So we think we've, we, we've announced that you know, a transport tariff of, of compression storage and transport itself is 1 to 150 per kilo, I think. That the addition of H2 production makes it you know, super competitive on a delivered basis, perhaps around four to five dollars on a levelized cost basis. Yeah. So what what can you sell it at? Probably the next question. So I think that's that is a prime example where it's forty to fifty thousand tons. You know, it's two ships and a barge. It's a much more manageable capital, and you're not having to build and construct the generation at the front end. So so we're shortening the development time frame, the approvals time frame. And you know, it's a project that's you know far more manageable within the 26, 27 you know, operational time frame. Yep, yep, understood. 
I was going to finish so quickly on Tiwi. I mean, that's you know, as you said, it's a it's it would be at the small end of the gigawatt scale projects that are proposed. So you've got more volume to sell. You've got more environmental. You've got more design and engineering. So that's that's why we're here in in Norway trying to capture the 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 first mover advantage up here, where the market's far more mature on the receiving end too. Are you seeing more uh, interest as well? Because obviously these these have been announced. We, we know they're around. Are there, is there more interest in the uh, in the ballparks? Because I, I I can't help but notice you're here for two months. <laughs> yeah, there is, there is absolutely, and I think it's the realization of of the the merits and and our awareness of compression is starting to cut through because we're advancing the maturity of our of our ship class approval program, and they're seeing now that you know, through our research and activity that you can actually deliver more volume at a lower price using compression. Yeah. Finally, just as a away from the ideas of compression and just a bigger look at the sector overall, FIDs uh, in this sector have been quite slow to mature. Do you, do you see hydrogen demand outstripping supply in 2030, which is just six years away? Is that a possibility? Well, that's an excellent question. We, we see the demand in the short term being exceeding of of a Norwegian hydrogen collaboration project is the one, the Ord H2. So we think we can do million tonnes in the European region. You know, Germany has a 10 million tonne you know, target by 2030 in terms of imports alone. So so I think it's clear there'll be more demand than supply, I think. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, look, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Argus Hydrogen and Future Fuels, we'll be back. Thanks very much.